0: We're going to get stuck into our text for the day. If you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at Acts. We're in Acts chapter 5. I'm going to be a little bit sneaky, and we're going to begin at the very end of Acts chapter 4. So we're going to begin at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Here's what it says. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. No kidding. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up the body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, uh, not knowing what had happened, and Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Right. (laughs) Oh, so, we're on, we're on chapter 5 in Acts, and as a church, you've been working through chapter by chapter, and Gareth said, Ben, would you like to come and speak on Acts chapter 5? And I said, I would love to do that. And then I read Acts chapter 5, and I went, oh my goodness, this is a bit of a puzzling text. So, um, bear with me as we go through this, and I hope there's a few things that we can get out of it. Because chapter 5 begins with this story of Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife. They're part of this new church community. They sell a piece of their property. They secretly hold back some of it. They give the rest to the church. God finds out. Peter confronts them, and they both fall down dead, three hours apart. In the midst of the momentum and the excitement and the growth of the church, this story, as I read it, just feels like a little bit out of place kind of bothered that it's there and so we're going to start actually just at the very end of chapter four looking at where the church is at because it falls and it flows directly into this story it's helpful to see both parts of that before we do that um I'm going to ask you to do something this always scares everyone right I'm going to ask you to do something um, I'm going to ask you to speak to the person beside you I promise it's going to be for. 30 seconds maximum, okay? I am slightly more introverted, so I realize this is a terrifying thing to have to do. It's super easy. Firstly, you need to establish, you need to know the person's name beside you, and then I want you to ask them, why have you got the name that you have? Okay, the answer might be because your your parents gave you that name, you know the story of it, or perhaps your name means something. 30 seconds, why have you got the name that you have? Go for it. Great. Okay, let's bring it back in. Thank you so much for doing that. If you didn't get to finish the conversation, you can, you can find out more at the end. Um, keep that thought of a name, right? Of a name in your head, okay? Hopefully you learned something about the person beside you. But at this point in Acts, the church has grown at a phenomenal rate. Um, At this point in Acts, at the end of chapter 4, it's grown from about 12 apostles to potentially well over 5,000 people. In the space of a few months, that's really, really good going. And this is a bunch of believers, some who've walked with Jesus, some who are simply hearing about him. They're encountering the Holy Spirit. Amazing things are happening, yet they have no name yet. Christianity has not been invented yet the term christianity as a name is not used until acts chapter 11 so this is a group of believers something is happening miracles are happening healing is happening preaching is happening the holy spirit is moving amongst these people there's a mark of welcomeness, uh, there's a community, there is people that don't just sound and look like each other, but we heard back in Pentecost, of 15 different nations, these are people from very different cultures, so they're marked by welcomeness, and yet they don't have any language for it. They don't have a name yet. As far as we're aware, they haven't set up a mission action team. As far as we're aware, they, uh, they have no rota for the worship. And we're pretty sure there's no uh, strategic prayer direction for the church either. This is simply a church that is moving forward and growing and who are encountering the Holy Spirit. That's what's driving the church forward. And we see at the end of chapter 4, in those kind of few verses that we read, it said that this group of believers are described as being united in one heart and mind. Uh, they were so together, there's a remarkable line in the passage that says that there was no needy person among them. This group of believers, uh, with their togetherness, had literally stamped out poverty, one in heart and mind. Not just agreeing in key issues, but so much so actually carrying each other's burdens and doing something about it. Look, the writer, tells us that from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the seals and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This is an amazing but also terrifying example of, of radical generosity and hospitality. I have a friend called Phil who he lives down in Belfast. He's a follower of Jesus, and I think the way he lives is as close to this Axe Church of anyone else I know. He uh, has committed himself to a life of singleness. He lives in a house with five or six other uh, Christian men who've, who've done the same thing they pull their resources together and some of them work in ministries some of them work in secular space and they pull their resources together yes take what they need to live and survive but it means they can do so much more together they invite people for periods to stay with them who need that who need fed who need clothed who need just a space and hospitality probably as similar to the axe church as what i know. that's just down in belfast And it's very likely this group of believers in Acts were basing how they did community on what they would have read in Scripture. We read in Deuteronomy 15, it gives the commands for the community to forgive debts, for debts to be cancelled every seven years. This work for six and rest one, this idea of work and rest. It also says that anyone in slavery should be freed after seven years this idea of equalizing again and then there's this really familiar line in deuteronomy 15 verse 4 that says this and there will be no needy person amongst you similar we hear that in the acts and then luke finishes by giving us this really practical example he gives us a, a name of a man called barnabas just to tell us what some ordinary person did he said barnabas he sold the field that he owned the money he got for it he put it at the apostles' feet and distributed it to those in need. And so this is the context. I wanted to spend a few minutes doing that. This is the context of the church just before chapter 5 comes in, where we hear the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They flow directly into each other. It's helpful to know that. So Ananias and Sapphira, let's get into it. Uh, husband and wife, they were, they were part of this exciting, dynamic, growing community, and they decided to sell something something they owned, they decided to sell property. I mean, also, firstly, what an amazing, generous thing to do. Now, they secretly held some of it back, but they gave the rest to the church to be used as seen fit by the apostles. And then God kills both of them. Three hours apart. So I'm going to try and draw a few things out of this. I think it's okay if we find this a puzzling text. I did. Um, I think it's okay if we leave still wrestling with this text but I hope we leave knowing that God is good. So here's here's what I think um, as I was praying and thinking about this. I understand, as I read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, I understand that they should have given everything. I get that. I understand that they shouldn't have held, secretly held any of the money back. They should have given it all and put it at the feet of the apostles. I I get that. But what I also read is this is a married couple. And because the church is only a few months old, this is a married couple who likely have just become followers of Jesus. They've decided to sacrificially give to the church. They have sold property. Imagine if we sold property and gave it all to the church. That's a radical thing to do. They did keep back secretly some of it for themselves. But from reading the text, it looks like they at least gave most of it. I would have much preferred if we read the story and Peter confronted them and then they had the opportunity to at least say sorry. They had the opportunity to say, actually, you're right, I I was wrong. Um, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have lied. And then maybe they had the opportunity to, to give it back, to give it all or not sell in the first place if they weren't financially able to do that. But God kills them. So what can we take from this? What's Luke trying to tell us? And well, I think there's a few things we could talk about. We, we could talk about God's swift judgment in this. We could talk about uh, why Ananias and Sapphira had next to no time to repent and say sorry, why there was no second chances. And it's worth saying that this is quite a rare thing that happens in the Bible. As far as I can see, please come and chat to me after if you think there's way more times in the Bible that this happens. But as far as I see and I read, in the Old Testament, there's maybe three or four times where something like this happens, God's swift judgment. In the New Testament, and the, the rise of the early church, this is really the only time something like this happens. We could talk about lying one of the things that they did was upfront lie. Um, last week, I was up the Mooran Mountains. I, I'm a firm believer that this is the best place in Northern Ireland if you want to view on a sunny day. There's a mediocre photo that I took while up the Mourne Mountains. And it, it takes a lot of effort to get to the top of a mountain. If you've ever done uh, any sort of mountain climbing before, it's, it's hard work, right? And we got to the top, we took my photo, and then gravity helps you on the way down. It's wonderful. But... As we were coming quite a way down the mountain, we met this group, and I felt really sorry for them, right? They, they looked like that. it just wasn't going well up the mountains for them, right? Their legs were heavy, their steps were almost going backwards somehow while they were going forwards. Um, you could see they were just having a miserable time, and they, they just wanted to get to the top of the mountains. And as we were kind of skipping down past them, they, they, they asked a question, and they said, are we nearly at the top? And this is where I told my greatest lie of the day. I said, yeah, you're nearly there. They weren't nearly there. Did I lie? Yeah, was I wrong to do that? I guess you can make your mind up about that after. I genuinely wanted to get them up to the top. And I guess for Ananias and Sapphira, they up front simply lied. And Ananias didn't have to lie, this is the thing. He he could have sold the property, he could have kept back some of the money, and then he could have said, I choose to give this amount. We hear the story of Barnabas before, and Barnabas is not an example of what every person in the community was doing. He's an example of what someone who was able to give was doing. So being part of that 5,000 believers, you didn't have to just sell all your property, you didn't have to sell everything, it was your choice if you were able to do that. So they didn't have to lie. But what I want to spend just the rest of my time speaking about is what I think this passage really comes down to is the motive behind what they did, because motive matters. The motive behind their giving was unhealthy. Their motive was that they wanted to look good, that they wanted it to appear that they had given everything to the church while still being able to keep some of the wealth for themselves. And perhaps we can explore this idea of what this looks like for us, our motive in our own lives. And um, very kind of on point at the minute as we were even just commissioning 240 people who are leading and serving in this community in Orangefield, what's our motive behind why we do what we do? And we see that in this motive, uh, the motive behind um, what Ananias was doing in Acts 5 verse 3, Peter says, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you've received for the land? His motive was out of place. Um, Lauren, my wife, here with me this morning. Uh, it's so lovely to be back at Orangefield. And we, we got married just before the pandemic, so we kind of snuck in there. And we've learned a lot about each other um, during marriage. We've been married for a few years now. And one of the things we've really realized is we've come from two quite different families, okay? And how we did things in those families was pretty different. And one of the things we clashed on most early on was when it comes to doing the washing, right? Okay, let me let me explain. So in my family growing up, and I'm very aware that most of my family go to Orangefield, and so I can't even exaggerate at all here, um, but most of, uh, growing up for me, I, I didn't do much of the washing. I lived in this magical house where um, my clothes would appear in the wardrobe. Uh, they would get magically picked up off the floor and put in the dirty washing, and I'm seeing way too many people nodding their head right now. And uh, Lauren, on the other hand, came from a family, where she, she did a bit more of the washing. And so when we came uh, to be married and living together, what would happen is Lauren would come into the room when I was there, and she would point to the floor, and she would say, what's that? <laughs> and I would say, easy question, that's a wet tile, right? That's a wet tile." Lauren was not asking me, is that a wet tile?" She was asking me, why on earth is a wet tile on the ground, okay? And what I began to realize, now I'm far from the finished product, and Lauren's kind of like, yes, you are far from the finished product, but... I have obviously started to have to really pitch in, realizing that this is us together. This is good for our house. This is good for our marriage. This is helpful for Lauren. And I'm not saying I get a lot of delight in doing the washing or doing the dishes, but actually I get a little bit of delight in it now as I see my motive has changed for why I do it, for what I'm doing. My motive has changed because I know it helps out Lauren. It helps out our house. My motive, our motives matter. And our lives are really, really busy. And I guess bringing it back to a church context, um, thinking about why we do what we do. And Gareth already named so many things that we do at Orangefield. We, we pray. We come to church on a Sunday morning. We're volunteering, serving, home groups, alphas. But why do we do these things? Certainly as I think personally for myself, sometimes my motives might not be Right. Am I doing things to want praise from others? Perhaps it's out of guilt. Maybe I do stuff just because it's always been done. Our motives matter, and here's the really freeing, wonderful news about this. There is nothing more that you or I can do to impress God. There's nothing more that you or I can do to make God love us anymore Jesus has already done everything on the cross. Let me, let me give a few examples of what this means. When it comes to coming, turning up to church on a Sunday morning, can I just say, well done for being here, right? It's tough to get out to church. Even if you're tuning in online, well done for tuning in. It's tough to get out to church sometimes. And uh, I was speaking to a friend recently, and I asked him, he was a little bit older than me, and he said, I said to him, like, why, why do you go to church? Why do, you, why do you go to church? And he said, well... I go to church because it just feels like the right thing to do. Um, I go to church, it's simply what you do, it's what's expected, it's what a good Christian does, and I guess that appeases God. It's what I've always done. And I guess there's there's a discipline in that, there's a good discipline in just that rhythm of turning up to church, but if we come to church understanding this truth that God, that Jesus died on the cross for you and me, As a result of that, God sees us as blameless and perfect in his sight. If we come to church with that attitude, with that motive, it totally changes everything. Church no longer becomes a duty or something we have to come to, but church becomes an opportunity, an opportunity to serve, an opportunity to to laugh and have community with one another, not just to spectate, but to play in the game and playing is always so much better. One of the other things that um i think we're called to as the church to do which is quite different i guess to what the rest of culture might call us to do is we're called to be generous there's a generosity aspect and uh, we're living in really tricky times at the minute everything is more expensive there's a reality in that that is tough that is difficult and um i i was speaking recently to one of our monthly donors at international justice mission just a a wonderful person and They've been giving really generously for the past eight years to IJM. I just asked her, why do you do that? Kind of a dangerous question to ask in case she was like, why do I do that? Okay. Um, and I was really hoping the answer wasn't because I don't know how to cancel a direct debit, right? But she, that wasn't her answer. Um, Her answer was this, and I want to read it out, and I asked her, could I read this out? I just thought it was the most amazing answer for someone, someone's motive behind their giving, really thinking and knowing and understanding and being involved in where their finances are going. This is what she said. I'm not able to burst into brothels or factories and rescue people in slavery, but by praying and giving regularly, I have the privilege of enabling others to bring hope, healing and transformation around the world love that someone who has this intentionality she's really taking a bit of time to think and be involved in something and loves to see where her finances are going the last example i want to give about our motives mattering is when it comes to serving and i was blown away this morning when gareth said there's 240 people who are serving or a part of something at Orangefield. How amazing is that? that? That is really amazing. And uh, I heard the story of this barrister uh, who's part of a church in England. He was joining this church in England, uh, this really successful barrister, and he, he was looking to get involved in the church. And basically, somehow, he ended up behind the PowerPoint, right, pressing the button okay, for changing the slide, going from one slide to the next. And he's going, I'm a successful barrister. Why on earth have I? Like People pay big money for my time this morning is to press a button, right? He's going, this is ridiculous. I can't believe this is what I have been given to do, how I am serving in this really vibrant church. And as he was pressing the button for the words to come up on the screen, he started to realize that what I'm doing is I'm enabling a room full of people to encounter and worship God. his mindset started to change, I started to go, hey, I'm pretty good at pressing this button. Do you know what? I am going to be the best button presser that this church has ever come across. And he started really thinking, about it. was I'm not going to hit the button too early, right? You know when you hit it too early and we lost the last line? Or I'm not going to hit it just too late, okay, where it's a little bit awkward and we're like, well, it's about to come up here, okay? I'm going to hit the button at just the right time. His total motive Changed when he realized the serving, all well, that can do. Realized I've just put pressure on the guys for the final song, for like perfect button pressing. But guys, thank you so much. What, a, what an amazing ministry. But this could apply to whatever we are serving and doing and being a part of at Orangefield. What's our motive behind why we do what we do? Our motive matters. Let me try and land all of this. Um, and just to say, I definitely don't get this right. I find this a really... Uh, I've wrestled a lot with this and I've found a few really helpful questions that I've asked myself and others have asked me that have helped me try to put some language to my motives and maybe I'll share them with you now. The first question would be ask God to search you to reveal your weak spots. If you're unsure how to put language to that if you're unsure even where to start can I recommend going to prayer ministry after and just saying can you just can you pray for me? Ask me to put some language to this. Then perhaps a few quite practical questions you can ask yourself, which will reveal something. Um, am I doing things to be recognized, seen, or loved by others? Or another one might be, if no one expressed any appreciation, would I continue to do it? Or maybe, would I do whatever God asks me, even if it seems minor, low, or insignificant? And perhaps if you've, got, you've managed to get some language around that, or you've, you've Worked out something around that. The other question that someone said to ask yourself is this then ask God to align you with His plan. Ask God to align you with His plan. I wonder if the band could come back up. Um, This text in Acts chapter 5 is a really challenging text. And I've only taken one little part of it and probably have left you have a lot more questions still about it unanswered. But this text was put there for a reason. It was in a moment when the church was thriving and multiplying and there was, a, there was an excitement about it and this almost felt like, why was this text there? And I wonder, was it there just for the church to have a moment to pause, to reflect, and to re-evaluate why are they doing what they're doing? To get our hearts and to get our motives right with God again. And perhaps that's a helpful exercise for us as we're just coming out of September into October. We're into this vision of a church that multiplies. Is this a moment for us to pause, to reflect, and to think what is God doing in our lives and to get our motives right with him? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you're a God who, who often cares more about our why than what we're doing. We pray this morning as we continue to encounter and look at this church in Acts, this united church, but then we also hear a story of Ananias and Sapphira and we wonder, where do we even start? But Father, we thank you that you care so much about our motives. And Father, may this be a moment, perhaps even in this next time of worship, for us to reflect. Thank you for all you're doing in our lives. But Father, would you sharpen us? Would you align us closer to your plan? We pray this in your name. Amen.